and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale the Real Seeker. And today I have a special treat for you guys. Uh, so I have uh, three uh, guests with us today. So that the first one is a guest who reached out to me, uh, Dr. Lydia McGrew. Hey, Lydia. Nice to be here, Dale. Excellent. And, uh, we also have uh, a couple co-hosts joining. So um, the infamous skeptic, the host of Skeptics and Seekers, David Johnson. Hey, David. Hello, hello. Welcome back. Good to be working with you again. And we also got uh, a fellow Christian who's been on the show before as a guest, but this time he's serving as a co-host. So Marvin Wallace from Hong Kong. Welcome, Marvin. Thank you very much, Dale. Excellent. So, so yeah, today, the plan for today's show is we have uh, Lydia McGrew uh, reached out to me and she wanted to uh, speak on a few issues. So she's got her new book coming out. Uh, on the Gospel of John. So we're going to be sort of discussing uh, that new book and the content of the Gospel of John and that sort of thing. Uh, and then we're going to get into the maximal facts approach for the resurrection. Um, so as my audience know, we had Mike Lacona on, and he's an advocate um, of the minimal facts approach. Um, and, you know, other people go for a moderate facts approach to the resurrection. Lydia is going to be giving the other side, the maximal facts approach. So that's the plan for today. Um, but yeah, just, just sort of getting started. For, for the audience who's not familiar, do you, do you each just want to take a couple minutes just to introduce yourself? Maybe starting with you, Lydia, as to, to who you are. Okay. Um, my name is Lydia McGrew. I have my doctorate in English from Vanderbilt University. Following that, I almost immediately began publishing professionally in philosophy journals. I have a, a very long publication record in uh, peer-reviewed philosophy journals. So for that reason, uh, and on the basis of that publication record, I am a analytic philosopher, and I would say even, even more so than a, a, an English scholar. And then uh, in the last four years or so, I've moved to applying analytic philosophy insights and my training there to the field of New Testament studies. And I've gotten into New Testament studies as well uh, while continuing to publish in philosophy. I published a number, I just got one accepted in Sintes recently. Um, there are crossovers between the work. Uh, I am a, a mother, I uh, homeschool. I only have one uh, child being homeschooled right now and in her senior year, so pretty soon I won't be saying that anymore. And I am a wife and homemaker. My husband is philosopher, uh, professional philosopher and apologist, uh, Timothy McGrew, that some of you may have heard of. All right. And uh, David, why don't you take a couple minutes just to introduce yourself and plug anything that you'd like in terms of your show? Great. Well, I'm David Johnson. I'm the host of Skeptics and Seekers. My uh, current co-host is David Russell. He does the podcast Apostatize or Apostatize. Um, I think that's it. And um, Dale here is my former uh co-host. And so we've had uh, at least a year and a piece uh, to hash things out. You can find all of our adventures on skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. If you want to hear uh, where Dale was on the show, click on the one that uh, says archives and uh, you'll get all of the past shows. Uh, and uh, the goal is really better conversations. Uh, we have uh, 
course, a skeptical co-host, a, a Christian co-host, and uh, we often just talk among ourselves. Sometimes we have interesting guests, and it's a show where everyone is welcome to share their voice. Uh, please visit us on our blog, skepticismseekers.squarespace.com. See you there. Excellent. All right. And last but not least, we have uh, Marvin Wallace. So, yeah, Marvin, do you want to introduce just in a couple minutes the audience who you are? Yes, uh, my name is uh, Marvin Wallace. I'm from England, but I've been living in Hong Kong for a few years now. Uh, I teach in a secondary school. I teach English um, to local school students. Um, I've gone on quite a trajectory because I, in university I first studied art after I became a Christian, I became interested in theology, and then I went into some theology, um, apologetics uh, at Biola, um, linguistics. I, I trained as a teacher as well, and right now I'm doing some um, philosophy training with uh, Southern Evangelicals. So that's my CV, as it were. Awesome. All right, perfect. So. Yeah, with that said, I think we can get straight into today's topics. And the first item up is uh, related to Lydia's new book on the Gospel of John. So, um, yeah, Lydia, the, the first question I'd want to ask is, okay, we have the Gospel of John. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the date, the dating of the book, the authorship of the book, uh, a little bit about, you know, the genre of, of that gospel and that sort of thing? My new book is uh, called The Eye of the Beholder, The Gospel of John as Historical Reportage. Now, I don't know when this show is going to be aired uh, as of this moment, which is uh, February 27th. It, the book is in pre-order status, and it will become uh, order-orderable. Uh, it is scheduled to be fully released on Monday, so just a couple of days on March 1st. So um, I'm, I'm real excited about it, and I have some excellent blurbs, too, from some pretty high-profile scholars for it, which I, I'm very grateful for. I, I definitely take the position that the book was authored by uh, John, the son of Zebedee. To me, the most important thing is that it was authored by a disciple of Jesus who personally knew him. The dating, I allow a, a quite a wide range I, I tend to follow the patristic evidence in thinking that it was probably written later in the life of John. So, you know, therefore, possibly as late as uh, 85, 90, uh, that late when he was elderly. On the other hand, it definitely breathes the atmosphere of Jerusalem before the fall of Jerusalem, before AD 70. If, uh, if he did write it late in life, it's because he knew, he knew that atmosphere of uh, Judaism before the fall, and he was of Jerusalem was just remembering all of that. There are others who would argue for a very early date of even writing the book, even pre seventy. While I don't go with that, I'm not totally close to that. So I, you know, pretty. Uh, the main thing is it was during his lifetime, and that's you know that's the important thing. Um, genre. I call it uh, historical reportage in my subtitle on my book. You could call it memoir, that these are the, the memoirs of someone who actually was a, a disciple of Jesus. And in that sense, it's a memoir of Jesus, that it's it, uh, just like, you know, Boswell uh, 
you know, wrote about Johnson and he had been a close friend and so forth. It's, it's that kind of relationship, a person who actually walked and talked and now he's telling us what he remembers uh, that, that actually happened. And, and I do think that the author had a remarkable memory, particularly a visual memory and an auditory memory. So that's, that's what I would say briefly on authorship date and genre. All right, cool. So, so yeah, let's let's turn it over to uh, the skeptical co-host first here. And David, do you have any follow-up questions based on these issues, or a follow-up comment, and that sort of thing? On not really. I would I would just ask, what is your best evidence that it was um, eyewitness, uh, as opposed to uh, some someone else? Um, just, I think that's what my audience would want to know. What what you think is the best one or two or three evidences for that? Well, here's what's hard about it is that word best. Um, there is, there's a mountain of evidence that it was written by an eyewitness and it's a cumulative mountain. Um, if I pick out one or two, it's going to be like, Oh, well, you know, I, I have an objection to that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's this ginormous cumulative case, and that's why I wrote a book. The book is 546 pages long, I believe, if I recall correctly, um, with several chapters on just the positive evidence. Let me give some categories. External and then internal. So those would be broad categories. Um, external evidence includes things like these casual notes of geography, cultural knowledge. These are put in in these casual ways. So here's one tiny little example. And I'm not going to say, oh, this is my best one. This is a this is a typical one is what I would say. So that he mentions when they're uh, going from Cana, which by the way, his original audience might not even have heard of. The book was published probably in Asia Minor. And it's not like, and Cana's this tiny little town over there in Galilee. It's not like John's uh, first audience surrounding him in Ephesus is gonna go, oh cool, he mentioned Cana, it must be historical. It's, it's not like that, it's an obscure, it would be an obscure village that they might not even have heard of. So when he mentions that they're going, they go from Cana to Capernaum, just this way of talking, he says they went down and they went down to Capernaum, where they'd previously been in Cana. That happens twice, actually it's said twice in, in the Gospel of John in the early chapters. That's the way a person talks who actually lives there and actually, you know, was was there and remembers because you do go down. Cana's in the hills and then Capernaum is that, um, you know, it's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So geographically, you're, you know, actually walking down. So that's an external example. Um, and there are lots more external examples of their, their culture. For example, at the marriage at Cana, it just says stone water pots, it's just in passing. And, and in fact, we found an ex, uh, excavation of a place in the region of Cana where they actually made stone water pots because for the Jews, it was easier to purify stone water pots. So that kind of fits with culture and also archeology. span But then internal evidences that just abound. And part of what I'm trying to bring back are some categories of internal evidences that have languished. Um, for example, what I call undesigned coincidences. I have a whole separate book on that called Hidden in Plain View. Also in this book, I bring up uh, what I call uh, uh, unexplained allusions. So this would be a place where a person's describing a scene, like where John says that the, the disciples of the 
John the Baptist were having a dispute about purification with a Jew. You know, it's just like this anonymous guy. And then they come to John the Baptist and, and what do they do? They don't say, hey, we're having a dispute and here's what it's about and what do you think? John the Baptist would have been their rabbi. Instead, they say, uh, there's a man, that man that you attested to, they mean Jesus, uh, he's baptizing and everybody's coming. And so they start complaining, you know, that Jesus is baptizing too many. This leads into this famous speech by John the Baptist where he says, he must increase and I must decrease. And what gets dropped? The dispute. Like we never learned what that was about. Now that's how a person tells a story. If you get your older friends to start telling a story about something that really happened to them, they'll mention something, but then they'll drop that that line of it because they're remembering it very vividly as it really happened. Um, another category of internal evidence is the, the vividness of John's knowledge of motions. And um, like, you know, someone runs and then they stop and then they look into the tomb and then they don't go in and the other guy comes and he goes in. Uh, we've gotta be careful not to be anachronistic. The genre of highly realistic fiction, I would say hyper-realistic fiction, did not exist at that time. This is something C.S. Lewis has noticed. This is something I can attest as an English scholar. Um, that, that genre where it's like made to look like you were really there and it's super realistic. If John invented that, A, he invented it as a hoax, and B, he, he invented it with no precedence and it disappeared with no uh, no successors, which is would be very implausible in literary history. Um, so in the better explanation is that he actually has eyewitness memories. In the case of some people, he might have talked to them. Like, I don't think he was there when Jesus talked to Mary Magdalene, but I think Mary told him the story. And it's got that same thing where, you know, she turns and then she turns back and then she turns back again. And that focus, uh, intensely visual focus on physical motion. So we've got these external and internal evidences. Those are just samples. Uh, so to call them the best, uh, those are some good samples, but they're just samples of the evidence of eyewitness testimony in the gospel. Thank you. Excellent. Perfect. So Marvin, yeah, do, from a Christian perspective, um, do, do you have any follow-up questions related to this or? I would, I would, I would just ask uh, Lydia, what um, date do you give as the uh, authorship of the gospel of John? Which uh, manuscript do you, do you attest to as the the earliest version that you think is reliable? I don't do a lot in the book with specifically manuscript evidence because of course we don't have the autographer. You know, it's not like we're gonna literally have the, you know, the, the, the thing that John or his scribe wrote with their own hand. Um, we do have that, that little fragment of, mm -hmm. of the gospel um, that goes, you know, now there's some controversy, but it goes back I would say early-ish in the second century, and then that it, it had to make its way. I mean, it's found far from where it was probably written, and it had to kind of make you know make its way down there in copies and so forth. Um, and I think that definitely pushes back against some of the old claims, which I think are largely abandoned even by skeptical scholars now, that the gospel was written way, way, way on into the second century, and we've got patristic. Uh, evidence there. Uh, Justin Martyr actually uh, 
quotes it, you know, quotes briefly from uh, the Gospel of John, and he's, you know, early second century. Um, so as I said, you know, I think it can easily be dated within the lifetime of the beloved disciple, but I allow, uh, as far as the actual writing, but I allow a pretty wide range from, you know, pre-70 to, uh, you know, 100, really, if he lived to be old enough, um, with probably, you know, somewhat of a preference for somewhere around the, you know, 75 to 85, 75 to 90, 15-year range in there. These are estimates, but I think the 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 bulk of the evidence, very strong that it was actually written by uh, a companion of Jesus, and that in itself is going to constrain the dating. Mm -hmm. uh, out of curiosity, just as a quick, quick follow-up, um, I, I noticed, I know that uh, you said that it's, okay, John the son of Zebedee. Um, some people like Richard Bauckham might say, well, it was an eyewitness. They admit that evidence, but maybe it was John the elder, not the apostle. So like, do you, have, do you want to just maybe briefly give out the reasons why you think it's John, the son of Zebedee, as opposed to another eyewitness named John? Right. So I have an entire appendix on that <clears throat> at the end of the Eye of the Beholder. I deliberately kind of put it off to the appendix. Um, and it's it's long. I mean, it's, it's like a monograph in and of itself. I forget how many pages, maybe 50 pages long, just on that uh, John the Elder thing. So I, I can't. I can't possibly give all the reasons here, but uh, one of the reasons is that uh, there is no patristic evidence that it was, in fact, written by anyone other than the son of Zebedee, and there's a lot of patristic evidence, I believe, that it was written by the son of Zebedee. I think Balcom, you know, and I like a lot of Balcom's work. I'm not trying to diss Balcom, but I think he really has to do what I would call gerrymander or be sort of ad hoc to reinterpret the patristics references to John the Apostle, John the disciple of the Lord, <clears throat> you know, John who leaned on Jesus' breast and all that. They clearly think that they're being unambiguous and that they're referring to one guy and then he has to sort of multiply two different guys to whom most of these things would apply and say, oh, well, you know, it's ambiguous, so it could be my preferred guy. Um, whereas the way that the church fathers talk, it's like there really was only one person who fulfilled these uh, criteria in, in that they think they're being clear to their audience. And I think that strongly argues for the son of Zebedee. Uh, another reason is that I, I think the internal evidence of the Gospels is very strong that the only disciples who were present at the Last Supper were the 12. Now, I'm um, being a little coy about exactly what my argument is for that because I want people to get the book and read it, but um, that's often characterized as simply an argument from silence. Well, we only see a mention, you know, Mark says he came with the 12 and, and the synoptics say he came with the 12. Well, that doesn't mean it was only the 12. Sure, fine, but then, the, you know, you put that together with some other internal indicators that he's definitely that all and only the 12 are there with him at the table when he's making his his statements and so forth uh then that's very strong because Balcom's going to agree with me that it was someone who was at the last supper who uh was you know seated right next to jesus but if the only ones who were were the 12, and that we know it was somebody named John, then it, it has to be the son of Zebedee. He's the only member of the 12 named John. So that's that's a brief summary of some of my arguments there. Awesome. All right, perfect. So, so yeah, I think I'll, I'll move it on now to the next 
couple questions, and I'm, I'm going to combine questions two and three. Um, so, so yeah, so great. So we figured out uh, the authorship of the gospel, the dating, the genre. Um, okay, what does that mean though, in practical terms? How how reliable is the Gospel of John uh, in terms of the narratives of the reports, and also include in that what about the sayings of Jesus, things like the I am statements. Did Jesus really say what the gospel says he said and do the things that he said he did? Right. Well, you'll notice that when I talked a little bit about, you know, David asked me, uh, what would I say is my best evidence for um, eyewitness testimony? And there, that is entangled with the question of reliability. It's inextricably entangled because evidence for eyewitness testimony is in and of itself, you know, ipso facto evidence for reliability and evidence for reliability is evidence for eyewitness testimony. It goes both ways. Um, and then genre is also entangled. So you notice I talked about historical reportage and memoir. Once you realize that that's the kind of genre that he's really, he really is presenting it as uh, historical in nature. That really cuts the, the ground out from under the kind of claims that you'll hear, unfortunately, even from some evangelical scholars like um, Michael Lacona and Craig Evans, to the effect that the genre is this sort of mixed thing. It's like a mixed genre, uh, a little bit like what we would call something based on true events or maybe even inspired by true events, where it's got some, you know, some truth in it. Uh, Craig Evans used the term nuggets. It's got nuggets of truth, um, like as if they're, you know, nuggets of gold or something, but then it's not all intended to be history. Once we start looking at the realism of it and even things that he says himself, you know, his testimony is true and so forth. We see that he's, he's not giving us that option. The author is not giving us that option. So that genre starts answering that question of whether he's, you know, putting in there deliberately stories that he made up. Let me put it this way. If he's doing that, he's a really clever, deceiving liar. It's not, it's not like, oh, well, it's the ancients and they had different views and it's all okay because it's kind of, you know, like they just accepted that it was partially fictional the way we would for a, um, a, a, a movie that's just like based on true events. And that's very anachronistic. Um, it's not how the early church received it. And that's not how John presents it. Um, now, does that mean that he didn't make mistakes? So I, I want to I make clear here, I'm actually not an inerrantist. There could be some minor mistakes, but they mm -hmm. would be good faith and they're going to be limited by the fact that when you have a very in, intelligent, reliable witness with a really good memory, we know, uh, and, and who's intending to be truthful, he's not intending to make things up, we know how that tends statistically to constrain the kinds of mistakes that you even are at all likely to have from such a witness. He might get a, he might get a day wrong or something like that. He might uh, misremember a number or something by a, some, some small amount or whatever, but he's not, you're not going to have um, sayings that didn't recognizably happen. You're not going to have him uh, moving something, you know, I'm going to move the temple cleansing to early in Jesus' ministry. That's not the way a, um, a reliable witness who's intending to be truthful is going to carry things out. So once we understand that we're dealing with a eyewitness who is not 
trying to make stuff up, who doesn't consider himself licensed to do that, then you you know you're going to get a very highly reliable gospel, and that's going to extend to the I am sayings. You know, I, I sometimes laugh a little at the way that people bring up these I am sayings, like there's some special problem. It's not even a miracle, even if you're skeptical of a miracle because you're a skeptic, or or just because you think miracles have a higher burden of proof for something. We have to ask. What there's nothing miraculous about a man standing there on the street and saying, Before Abraham was, I am right. That's it's just an event, um, and or saying, uh, I am the true vine, or something. Even if you just thought Jesus was a teacher, he could have said that about himself. So sometimes we have to really push back, you know, why are we even making special skepticism about these particular sayings? If the gospel is reliable, if it's coming, if we have all this evidence that it is, if it's coming from an eyewitness, if his intention is to be truthful, why should we even doubt that Jesus said that? Usually what we get there is an argument from silence. Well, why, why don't we find them in the synoptics? And that's Bart Ehrman will just hammer on that. Surely if he had said this and they would have recorded this. And I, I think that uh, arguments from silence, first of all, are really poor of that kind, particularly of that kind where you have a witness and then you put the positive witness of this uh, thing up against the mere silence of that thing. That's a really bad argument from silence. Um, and, and second of all, because um, we don't actually know all of the intentions. So we, we shouldn't be reading anachronistically back in our concerns. Like we're here going, we want to argue that Jesus is God against skeptics. We want the strongest proof text. Well, you don't necessarily know that that was uh, Mark's or Matthew's or Luke's concern to say, I got to be sure whatever else I say, whatever else I fit into my scroll to fit in that place where Jesus said, um, before Abraham was, I am. That might not have been their priority. Uh, it's something John is interested in, but this is a matter of selection from among historical materials, uh, not a matter of uh, you know, something representative, like, okay, if he said this, then he must have said it a lot. And so then they should all be showing him saying it a lot. That's, that's a false view as well. Uh, so I see no reason to question the I am sayings. And I think they fit in really well with that genre of historical memoir that I would place the gospel in. Excellent. All right, perfect. Um, so, so Marvin, um, I'll turn it to you first this time. Um, do you have any follow-up uh, questions or comments on, on those two aspects that Lydia addressed, the reliability? No, uh, I don't, she did a great job. I think um, I'm, just, I'm just reminded that um, we shouldn't necessarily take things as arguments until they're proven to be arguments, which is the point that she was making in another way about um, John eight fifty eight with the I am sayings, which is a good point. Mm. Why, do we, why do we take a saying um, to be a mirac miraculous event? It's, it is a saying, right? Which could have been ushered by a normal a human being. Yeah. Well, I'm, well, I'm sure. It's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sure our, the next person I'm going to turn it to. He he says it all the time. We got him last night saying it, right, David. Uh, I'll turn it. I'll turn it to you. Do, do you have any um, follow-ups for Lydia? On sure, that? sure. I've got three. I'll just make it. I'll just pick pick the one. Um, so uh, the let, let me let me just preface this by saying I I don't 
have a real problem with saying that John, whoever wrote this, was a person uh, who was familiar with the time and place. Um, and so that's, that's easy uh, to me. That does not indicate that the fantastical elements of his story is real. And so I, I wanted to preface that by um, saying when I was doing some news writing uh, myself, I do different writing now, but uh, I was following the story very carefully of uh, Bloomberg and they put out a story a couple of years ago called The Big Hack, I think it was. Um, and it was well-resourced. They'd been following it for uh, well over a year. Uh, they talked about uh, hardware hacking in a, in a tiny um, uh, chip that uh, was put into uh, computers by a company whose name I don't want to mention because they, they were slandered bad enough already. Uh, and it was a fantastical story and everyone latched onto it until we started investigating it and discovered, you know what? This is a lie. <laughs> this, this did not happen. The big hack is a big lie. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we got a little bit more detail about, uh, you know, how they were quote unquote sourcing, uh, the story. Bloomberg is one of the more reliable, or at least they were at, at that time, one of the most reliable journalistic outlets in the world. And if they wrote it, you could feel pretty confident about it. And yet when this story came out, it, it ruined their credibility in, in many circles because it turns out uh, that everything about it was just wrong and they should have retracted it. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm not questioning your uh, statement that John is uh, intended to be historical. I'm not questioning your statement that many mundane uh, details about the region and time are correct. But that does not mean that the more fantastical elements, therefore, should be trusted. Do you can can you at least acknowledge that, or tell me tell me why I should accept the fa more fantastical details just because of the mundane mundane details? I live in a you know once again I'm a writer. I live in the world every day where people get a lot of mundane details right and the more fantastical parts of their stories wrong. Right. So, yeah, I, I can I can address that. Um, so by more fantastical, I'm taking it that in John, you're chiefly meaning miraculous. Uh, in the case of the big hack, it was the the big hack. You know, it wasn't a miracle, but it was uh, a conspiracy or something. It, like it was almost a miracle because the yeah. chip that they <laughs> described just can't exist at this particular time so right it was it was like a it was a conspiracy or almost science fictiony or something of that kind so um let me let me say that i do actually acknowledge that miracles have a higher burden of proof so uh just like you we were with the bloomberg thing it had to be investigated it was it was a prima facie case that had really happened it made it worth investigating. Then they investigated. They found out it was a lie. Um, if we're dealing with um, a, a miracle, like, say, uh, the, the man born blind. I did a video on the man born blind recently in John Jesus' healing of the man born blind. Um, I think that the, the vividness of that story and the fact that John is generally reliable in these other ways is a prima facie case that it happened. 
Now, if you're going to set against that, well, you know, it's a miracle, I don't believe in miracles, then, you know, obviously we have some worldview issues that are blocking it. But um, we, we, I think we can build a pretty strong prima facie case, which then shifts that, you know, that burden of proof. Now, if John tells a miracle way more briefly, or, or the synoptics will sometimes do this, it'll be just like, you know, he healed many or something. So John, John says that in uh, chapter two, he's in, he's in Jerusalem, he healed many. There are no details or anything in and of itself. That account doesn't give us a whole lot to go on for those, those particular things. This is non-deductive inference. And, and this is my specialty as a philosopher. We can't ignore the fact that non-deductive evidence can present a strong case and demand, you know, so skeptics will go, well, that doesn't mean that. Well, what do you mean by that doesn't mean? Does it, you mean that doesn't deductively prove it? No, it doesn't deductively prove it. Uh, do you mean it provides no evidence? Well, that's wrong. It's gonna, it's gonna provide some evidence that these things happened, then you have to say, well, you know, why, why do we believe they did not happen? Now, there's a, a third point, which is, is more related to the latter part of our, our conversation today about the resurrection of Jesus. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, the, uh, I think the book of Acts very reliably declares, and again, this is not, this in itself is not a miracle. This is a, a, a historical record of what guys were saying, that Peter and John were out there at the risk of their necks. Uh, I don't think that uh, John was in the end executed, but for all he knew, he was going to be executed. Out there at the risk of their necks, six weeks after Jesus had been uh, crucified, saying he had risen again, and that they were willing to, to risk that uh, for everything. So if we if we think it's the same John, then this was not a person who was sort of cheaply throwing out a, a, a fraudulent story. He does not come across then as a fraudster. And I would say the, the, the biggest charges against John that I'm going, going against are the charges that he wasn't a fraudster, but he was just doing something that was sort of allowed, which was to embellish. I think once you're faced with the idea of viewing John as a as an actual fraud, as the, as this guy who was actually out there, you know, uh, just making up this complete lie, that is uh, that's a that's a tough sell. I think that's a tough sell. I think his sincerity is is pretty patent in uh, in the life that he lived and the things that he was willing to risk. So if this is John, the son of Zebedee, uh, I think it's really hard to argue that he was just a, a complete liar and deceiver. The other thing I want to mention again briefly is let's not be anachronistic. People who make up lies nowadays have hundreds of years of realistic fiction they can copy and they can imitate to try to make what they're doing sound real. Uh, it, the, the realistic novel's been around for a long time, since at least Daniel Defoe in the 1700s, and it's come to a very high pitch of sophistication. Uh, I love the novels of Wendell Berry. They're, they're beautiful, and they are actually based on his own experiences. They're super realistic, hyper-realistic. The author of the Gospel of John did not have those models. And again and again, he's being casual. He's even doing things that make bad fiction. I think those unexplained allusions I mentioned before, they're not typical of fiction. They're not even typical of modern fiction. And so uh, again, this makes it really hard 
uh, internally to argue that this is just a, a, a lie, a clever lie. It's too clever. I think at that point, you went, we're off into the realm of sort of like, you know, Cartesian deceiver scenarios uh, as far as uh, saying that this is, this is a hoax or a lie. So those are, those are some of my answers to that, to that question and that challenge. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, we kind of we kind of got into the next question. I, I wanted to kind of ask Lydia about, okay, outside of Jesus' resurrection, okay, what kind of miracles in the Gospel of John and, and that sort of thing can we establish historically? Those probably happened as well. So, yeah, you, you kind of answered and gave one example there. I think uh, the man born blind. You think that that's historical? Do you want to maybe speak to? What are some of the other things that we think are historical? How does your approach to that perhaps differ from others? You know, do you like Graham Twelfth Tree? I think he gives a list of like 22 to 24 thing, miracle accounts that he says, yeah, these ones are historical. Um, so how do you compare it to, to others who study that issue? So I, I think they're all historical, um, but it, my approach is going to be different to different ones. I strongly encourage people subscribe to my YouTube channel. I have a, a long series on uh, historical reliability of the Gospels and miracles. I give examples of, of miracle accounts that are shorter, miracle accounts that are longer, and so forth. And uh, something I've been working on for 15 years, I think that's right, um, uh, in my professional work in epistemology, uh, philosophy of, of knowledge, theory of knowledge, is what I call epistemic routing. And if you're really geeky, you want to get into this, you can you can look into this. That we have we have routing of evidence from different directions, and how can we do that without reasoning circularly? This is all very fascinating. So to to try to do it briefly, for some miracles you're going to be taking uh, some miracles other than the resurrection. You're going to be taking your evidence of the resurrection, which is independent evidence, so that's why this is not circular, and you're going to be routing the force of that backwards to that miracle and saying, well, I have independent evidence that Jesus really was God because he rose from the dead, and so that, that kind of raises uh, what we call the prior probability that he was able to perform a miracle here. Uh, I, and I also have independent evidence of the reliability of this gospel, which gives me some reason to accept what you might call the you know, external statements of uh, you know, what people claim they saw happen. And uh, then that's gonna be sort of my, my strongest evidence for the miracle because maybe the account itself is too brief or maybe the account itself could be accounted for naturalistically. So take, for example, the raising of Jairus's daughter. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a good account. It's not like it has no credibility, but it's even possible that she didn't, she wasn't really dead. You know, it doesn't say it was only a brief time. You know, they, they run and they get Jesus right away. You know, it doesn't say, hey, you know, and we, we uh, took her pulse and we held a mirror in front of her face and there was no, it doesn't go into what their evidence was that she was dead. Okay. But it says that Jesus walked in and took her by the hand and said, made a rise and she got up and, and talked and he gave her food and so forth. So, um, we can use there, we're going to rely somewhat more on our independent evidence about who Jesus was 
in concluding that it was a, a genuine miracle or take the woman with the issue of blood. She, um, we don't know what happened a week later, right? We don't have interviews like, like for Catholic miracles, they, they, they have, uh, what do they call them? Devil's advocates, right? Who try to find every other possible explanation. We don't have that for the woman with the issue of blood, right? Somebody goes and interviews her three months later. Hey, you know, did it still, is it still stopped? Did it start back up? No, we don't have that. Um, but we, we have reason to trust the external account of this woman coming up and touching him and uh, his saying, you know, who touched me and all of that, the, the dialogue and the embarrassment to her that she's not going to, you know, do this if, it, if, if she's not really desperate, if she's not really ill. So we've got like specifics of the accounts, but we also have the independent evidence of who Jesus was. But then sometimes you have specific accounts which have even more about that specific account. So that is, that is especially credible, maybe because of the length of it. And so you can get more details in there, or maybe because it's told in more than one gospel. Um, the man born blind, the vividness of the personality of the man himself, I think is especially strong, uh, especially in an era of, uh, you know, where you don't have these little vignettes of, of, of super, uh, you know, believable, credible, fictional personalities. Uh, in the case of the um, feeding of the 5,000, that's one that I emphasize because in my book on undesigned coincidences, I talk about the fact that you've got more undesigned coincidences about the feeding of the 5,000 than about any other uh, incident in the entire Bible. And that's because it's told in all four Gospels, and many of them are between John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And undesigned coincidence is one of these casual little puzzle-fitting things, uh, such as the fact that the grass was green mentioned in Mark and the fact that it's Passover mentioned in John. Uh, and a lot of these things, that the, the town that Philip was from and all of that, you can read about this in my book, Hidden in Plain View. I also have a video on the feeding of the 5,000, uh, a series of videos on the feeding of the 5,000. So some of these accounts are, they have all of this credibility that they carry with them themselves from internal and external evidences and, um, you know, indicators of realism, indicators of believability right in the account. And you can rely on that plus whatever other evidence you have about Jesus. And then for some miracles, you're going to be relying more on the other evidence that you have about Jesus or the other evidence that you have about the gospel. So that's kind of a long answer, but that shows you why I can say, I think they're all historical, but I would argue for them in different ways. All right, David, I'm going to turn it to, to you now to follow up because this was kind of a piggybacking on your last your last comment and Lydia's answer to that. So what do you think of Lydia's answer about approaching miracles and, you know, her notion of epistemic routing, as she calls it? I don't know that there's much I can uh, add to that without uh, without launching a, a very big topic. As you know, uh, SNS has been doing a several weeks long uh, deep dive into epistemology. Uh, Lydia, I wish uh, that you had been on the uh, Christian show uh, where Christians got on and talked about epistemology last week. Uh, that might have been helpful. <laughs> um, but um, um, yeah, I, I think that I will just let the miracle thing stand because I think it's, it's more than a follow-up uh, for me to to dive more into that, leave it to say, I don't see any reason why I should believe accounts of miracles. And I think that there are other, since we can't 
actually prove them and we can't go back and see them and they they don't seem to be repeatable we just have to take the word of the author and i don't and I, i'm not entirely sure how we get past that gotcha all right cool uh yeah so so marvin uh any anything to follow up on this miracles issue quickly or uh, no no oh okay <laughs> nice that was nice and quick so all right, so, so the last issue that we need to get into on the Gospel of John, great, we, we've covered all the nooks and crannies about that Gospel, but how does it relate to the other Gospels or the other New Testament literature? Aren't there, you know, doesn't it contradict, uh, putting aside Jesus' resurrection for the, for the time being, but doesn't it contradict the other Gospels and everything like that? So yeah, how, how does John relate to the other New Testament literature there? Well, I'm again, like I said, I'm not an inerratist. There are one or two places, just at this moment, I'm only thinking of one. No, okay, I can think of two, where it seems to me like there may be very minor uh, contradictions between John and the synoptics that I, where I'm not satisfied with the harmonizations. But in general, it's exactly the opposite. So far from contradicting, John complements the other gospels again and again and again. Uh, and this is what I referred to as undesigned coincidences. John will throw in a bit of information that is just uh, casual, and then it will fit really beautifully with something in in one of the other gospels. Like I said, we have a lot of these for um, for we have a lot of these for the uh, feeding of the five thousand, but there are, there are others. So, for example, uh, something that scholars bring up, they call it the yo uh, the messianic secret, and where Jesus is always telling people, you know, don't don't tell about this miracle, don't tell about this miracle, and they often go do they they disobey him. Uh, but, you know, why and why does it turn up so much more in Galilee? You know, that he's, he's always doing this in his Galilean ministry in, uh, in the synoptics. And then in John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, he is in Galilee. And they come and they try to make him king uh, by force. And the interesting thing is that in that sense, that explains the so-called messianic secret. And it also explains why it was a bigger deal in Galilee. And we have external evidence too, that Galilee was just a hotbed of, uh, you know, an insurrectionist tendencies at the time. And that Jesus is, is not wanting people to get the wrong idea that he's claiming messiahship in a place where they're going to misunderstand that. They're going to try to make him an earthly king. Whereas when he's talking to the woman at the well in John 4, she mentions the Messiah and he says, I who speaking to you am he. We can investigate uh, Samaritan. She's a Samaritan. Samaritan ideas of, uh, I believe they called him the Tareb, the, uh, the, the Messiah. And it was different. It was more like a teacher and so forth. So she's not going to start trying to, you know, she and her friends aren't going to try to start a rebellion to make Jesus an earthly king. So there's actually all these wonderful, subtle ways in which John and the synoptics confirm one another over and over and over again. Uh, harmonization, I want to say a word about. Harmonization, in my opinion, is a really good historical tool. And as you know, uh, I've written a book called The Mirror or the Mask. And in that book, I am disagreeing with uh, a scholar named Michael Lacona uh, that you mentioned before uh, about uh, Roman literature, Greco-Roman literature. And so I'm not just disagreeing with him about the Gospels. I'm, I'm disagreeing with him about Plutarch also. Uh, and I find that he and uh, 
a, a classicist, Christopher Pelling, who has influenced him a lot, they tend to force uh, Plutarch's lives into disharmony with one another unnecessarily. So this is not, harmonization is not something that you just do because you're a Christian and you, you're dying to find a way to make it work and not to admit that there's an error. It's something that a good responsible historian is going to do too. So I harmonize Plutarch um, when I think that can be plausibly done. Uh, like his two, you know, if he has two different lives, you know, if I think, yeah, you know, it looks like this thing, same similar kind of thing could have happened twice. Uh, in the, the Roman Senate or something like that, then, then I'll do that. And so I think that this is good to do. It's not just a Christian thing to do. It's something everybody should do. And so when we are talking about alleged contradictions between the Gospels, including John and the Synoptics, I think our first line, it's completely rational and reasonable to say, does it make sense that these could both be true in, an, in a way that's not like extremely strained? And I know we're going to have disagreements about what's extremely strained and what makes sense. But in general, I'd say New Testament scholarship is like the princess and the pea when it comes to harmonization. Any little harmonization and they can't sleep at night, you know, it's like, oh, it's terrible. This is a fundamentalist thing to do. And, and then they have this huge tolerance, on the other hand, for implausible theological theories and theories of theological invention, which should be bothering them far more epistemologically. Uh, apparent contradiction is a sign of independence. I want to emphasize that as an epistemologist, if, if uh, John is making something up based upon what we might call synoptic traditions, he would have the opportunity to make sure there isn't even an appearance of contradiction. And so when there's even an appearance of contradiction, which is then harmonizable, that's a great evidence actually of truth. And this is what a 19th century scholar called reconcilable variation. So, and even real contradiction. My article that's just recently been accepted for publication, it probably, probably won't come out for a year or so, but it's been accepted uh, in a technical journal, is on contradictions, even real contradictions in witness testimony, and how we can give probabilistic models where we, if we are worried about, or we have antecedent reason to, reason to suspect collusion or copying, a minor detailed contradiction can actually confirm the main event. And I actually give probabilistic models of how this could be because it has this great punch to disconfirm this uh, dependence hypothesis. And it doesn't really harm uh, the reliability of the witnesses that much if we weren't already committed to their being infallible. We already knew they're gonna be somewhat fallible. So we've kind of already built that in to the, uh, to the hypothesis of, uh, of there being truthful on the main event. So the contradiction, it's, it's somewhat anomalous. I'm not saying it comes up a lot, but it's, and it's not going to have a huge tendency to disconfirm. So in general, I would say summary, John's relation to the other gospels is very fruitful, very harmonizable, usually complementary with occasional uh, very minor details that, that appear contradictory where I'm not satisfied with the available harmonizations but that actually is not a big deal at all. Great, all right, Marvin. Um, yeah, do you have any follow-up questions or anything on that? No, that was great. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a good explication, yeah, it's fine. No. All right, fair enough. You're just enjoying the show, so. <laughs> uh, yes. All right, Dave, uh, David, we'll turn it to the skeptic then. Do you, do you have any follow-up 
questions or comments about what Lydia just said on that? Yeah, just one briefly. Is there a point where contradictions would bother you? So you mean like the number of them? Like how many? Well, just the type. Uh, I mean, you, you are okay with harmonization um, and you, you feel that some contradictions are confirmatory. Uh, and so is there, is there any type of contradiction that you would say is, oh, wait a minute, that's a problem? I would say if there is, so, so I'll go with type and then I'll mention number. Um, I would say if there's a type of contradiction where I think the author must have known the, the truth, okay? He must have known. And that the only way for him to get this wrong in his gospel would be for him to change it deliberately. That would be a concern because in my opinion, deliberate change, I, I'm gonna use a cancer metaphor, deliberate change metastasizes in a way that uh, accidental error on the kind of thing that we know reliable witnesses occasionally get wrong does not metastasize. You can think of this in a court of law if you had a, a witness and the uh, contrary counsel got him to admit that he made a mistake and pressed him and the witness said, yeah, I, I knew this, that that wasn't really the way it happened. I changed it. I wanted to make a better story. Now that's gonna really concern you about how reliable that guy is. And everything else he says, you're gonna be like, okay, you know, did he think that would make a better story too? Whereas if he just says, oh shoot, you know, you're right, it was Wednesday or something like that. And, and it was, here's why, you know, I got it wrong. And it's the kind of thing that could happen to anybody. That's not going to cause us to question as much his other, his other testimony. Um, and I think that some scholars believe that the, the temple cleansing is a case like this. I truly believe that there's a weird way, I'm, I'm sorry if this is too much of a digression, but there's a weird way in which traditional authorship has confused some evangelical scholars. And, and here's how that argument goes. Uh, and I'm, I don't believe this argument. I think this is a wrong argument. Argument goes like this. Um, John was the son of Zebedee. He was a disciple of Jesus. He must have known when the temple cleansing took place if he followed Jesus. There was, second premise, which I think is wrong, there was only one temple cleansing, okay? Um, then third premise, you know, John portrays it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the synoptics portray it at the end of Jesus' ministry, but John must have known when it really happened, so John must have moved it deliberately. Um, I, think, I think someone like William Lane Craig actually accepts that, that argument. I think that's what's moving him. And in fact, I think that's why uh, a big part of why he's endorsed Dr. Michael Lacona's work so much, because he thinks there are actually places where the gospel owner authors must have known that they were reporting it wrong from a literal wrong, if we're going to use that word, from a literal historical perspective. So then he's kind of looking for a way to say, uh, well, they were kind of allowed to do that deliberately. Um, and I agree that that would be very undermining, but I don't think there are any like that in any of the Gospels where there's a contradiction, where I think there's a good argument, he must have known that that was wrong and he must have uh, changed it on purpose. So that would be a type. Then as far as number, <clears throat> yeah, sure. If we had, you know, like some huge plethora of um, irresolvable contradictions without any plausible uh, harmonizations, you know, it's like 
all over the place, then you know, then we are going to have a problem. In fact, one of the points I make in my um, one of the points I make in my article that's coming out is that contradictions are very limited in their ability to confirm um, because it, you you can't really iterate that you know a lot like oh yeah now I got another contradiction we're doing even better now I got another contradiction we're doing even better there comes a point pretty quickly where um, it's going to disconfirm somewhat the reliability now I also argue that its capacity to disconfirm is pretty limited when you have a fallible witness but um, for sure that could that could mount up but again I don't think we're at that place with any of the gospels all right uh, and thank you all right, cool. Uh, Marvin, I already asked you for if you had a follow up on that one, I think. So, all right, well, let's let's at this point get into the main event, uh, Jesus' resurrection um, and that miracle. And Lydia came, came to me, obviously she's famous um, for advocating for what's called the maximal facts approach. And that does contrast to other methods out there. So first, first item up, for, to ask you there, Lee, is, okay, what is the maximal facts approach to the resurrection? How does this relate to other methods out there? So the, the minimal facts approach is the most popular. Everybody, everybody does it um, out there. And in the minimal facts approach, what you try hard to do is to find facts that are acknowledged by a majority of scholars. Often this relies upon uh, some research that Dr. Gary Habermas has done where he uh, has sent uh, questionnaires to a bunch of scholars. And we don't actually have that raw data, let me just add. I mean, Gary does, but I don't think anybody else does. And then he interprets this and, and puts out summaries, you know, that 75% agreed with this and this percent agreed with that. And you try to find uh, these facts that are acknowledged by skeptical scholars, liberal, supposedly Christian scholars, conservative Christian scholars, you know, all across the, the, the spectrum. And then you try to build your whole case just on those. And, and, and build, it's usually an inference to the best explanation would be the style. And uh, you're trying to say the best explanation for this is that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, I don't think that works. I have an entire, um, I have an entire webinar out there called uh, Minimal Facts versus Maximal Data, in which I say why I think that's just really weak. And I think that a lot of people are under a misimpression. A lot of people who think they're using the minimal facts are actually using the maximal facts without realizing it um, because they're under a misimpression about what these scholars uh, acknowledge. And the biggest thing here is the appearances. So you'll hear a vast majority of scholars acknowledge Jesus' appearances to his disciples. Really? Okay, what a lot of those scholars are saying is, it, Bart Ehrman is a good example here as well, they might have had some kind of a visionary experience of, you know, like the Marian visions and this, he could be floating in the sky. Dale Allison brought this up really well recently in his, uh, his series of interviews that Mike Lacona did with him. And I think Allison has really shown up the weakness of the minimal facts approach. I don't consider Allison an Orthodox Christian. I mean, I know he's a, I know he's an elder and a Presbyterian Church, but he's sort of a liberal scholar, and uh, he he thinks Jesus rose, but in this very attenuated, or he really is not sure, uh, confident at all about the physical resurrection, and that's partly because he accepts all of these scholarly doubts about the resurrection accounts. Um, so the appearances that are acknowledged are at most some kind of visual experience. Uh, Bart 
doesn't Bart Ehrman doesn't even acknowledge group appearances, but he's like, if they were, it might have been people seeing, you know, this this vague image in the sky or something. You can't base a strong argument for the resurrection on that. I'm sorry. And basically, I think it commits the fallacy of equivocation. We're using the word appearances and saying, oh, look, all these are these scholars acknowledge the appearances and they mean all these different things by the word appearances. So so that's my dumping on the minimal facts approach here. So the, the maximal uh, approach I, I think is inevitable. Let's just put it this way. I believe that even scholars who are great advocates of the minimal facts approach, you will watch them in real time shifting to a more maximal approach, like right before your very eyes. You can watch Gary Habermas do this in a symposium in, uh, I think it was 2012, in Philosophy of Christie with Dale Allison. Like, Boom, you know, Allison expresses doubts about the physical resurrection and suddenly Gary is saying, uh, well, he appeared indoors and outdoors. He appeared to skeptics. He was tangible. And it's like, whoa, 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 Gary, a majority of scholars don't acknowledge that. And, and that's great. I mean, I'm glad he shifts. But that's in a sense, it's a tacit admission that we we can't get where we need to go with the minimal facts approach. Um, so the maximal data approach uses the kinds of things we've been talking about in our first part of this interview, uh, internal evidences, external evidences, and so forth, and it brings them to bear on the reliability of the Gospels. And then that is used to support the idea that this is what the original witnesses claimed. If you look up my husband Tim's and my article for the Blackwell Companion, to um, natural theology. There's a preprint version of it available for free online. Uh, there's one sentence in it that's wrong, which is that we thought the majority of scholars would acknowledge that this is what the disciples claimed. Turns out they don't, so much the worse for them. Um, but what we do, we conditionalize on the idea that this is what people in a position to know, like the, the original guys at the time, claimed. They claimed that they had all of these uh, tactile experiences that they were eating with him and, and so forth. Um, and they claimed that they claimed it within a short time of his death. And then they uh, claimed it at the risk, enormous risk of their own lives, even if they didn't all actually die, but at the very, very real, very imminent risk of their lives. And so then this is a, a, a style of argument that was uh, popularized by William Paley and uh, other people who answered the, the deists back in the 1700s that the best explanation of this is that Jesus really was physically risen from the dead. And all that stuff about gospel reliability comes into play in saying this is really what they claimed because the modern higher critical scholars, and unfortunately, even some uh, evangelicals would say, well, maybe they didn't really claim that, or we can't really know that they claimed that, because these accounts might be greatly embellished by people who weren't eyewitnesses, and that's where the reliability of the Gospels comes into play. No, this is a faithful record of what the witnesses claimed, and then, or alleged witnesses, putative witnesses, and then what's the best explanation of that? So that's, that's how those contrast. Cool. Uh, so, so yeah, just a couple quick follow-ups before I go to the co-host. So, uh, yeah, so Lydia mentioned, obviously I'm, I'm friends with Gary as well, so he hasn't published his research. He, he is, though, with his MO coming, modus uh, operandi or whatnot, his um, big book coming out, his MO, uh, he will be publishing that, his records uh, of all the responses that he got. So, yeah, when that comes out, please check that out. 
Um, one quick follow-up for you, Lydia. So do you think with the maximal facts approach, is that the only one that works or could it, could there be a, a moderate facts approach somewhere in between minimum and maximal facts that may be sufficient for arguing for the resurrection in your view as well? Or is it maximal facts approach or nothing? Well, it depends. Um, the only person I've ever seen, I've seen somebody who was a guest on your show. I don't really know a whole lot else about him. Uh, I believe his name is Caleb Jackson. Yep. And uh, he uses the phrase moderate facts approach. And as he means it, no, that won't work. Uh, because as he means it, he actually accepts the idea that the gospel authors might have embellished their stories. Mm. And uh, I think that's, that, that's just a kill right there. The, the minute you start conceding that the authors are um, not scrupulous about fact hmm. and that they're embellishing or for all we know they could be embellishing or you try to say it doesn't matter then it does matter uh and then you're you're in trouble as far uh, epistemically you know for some of the reasons i was just giving a minute ago um because then you i mean let's put it this way um what are they then we're going to say they're most likely to embellish exactly those physical details i mean that's it's exactly what the skeptical and liberal scholars have said it's exactly what allison says that um they um you know they put in those physical details that he was able to eat with them and so forth to try to argue that he wasn't a ghost and and so and those are the ones those are the kinds of details that are um i think very strong in favor of the the physical resurrection as opposed to some spiritual vision or something like that. I actually saw, and of course I'm not going to name this person, but I actually saw someone in the com thread below, I think it was one of the videos, I think it was one of the videos that Dr. Lacona did responding to me last summer. I could be wrong about that, but there was, he allowed comments, you know, and there was some discussion. And uh, a skeptic was talking about the possibility of embellishment and how this would affect the resurrection. And this other person who's a Christian came in and said, well, yeah, maybe on Mike's approach, the, uh, the eating, eating part, you know, in Luke, the eating fish part could have been added. Now, I want to add that it's not something Lacona said. This was something that someone else was saying and not, and not necessarily disagreeing with just throwing it out there. That could be one of these uh, uh, literary devices, these compositional devices. So we can see how that eats away at the case. Now, if we just use a vague phrase, moderate facts, I want to make something, something clear. There is an elevator version of what I call the maximal facts approach. Go to my YouTube channel and, and look for the, uh, the maximal facts approach, a brief statement of the maximal facts approach to uh, the resurrection, and you'll find it. It's not a really, you know, not a two-hour video, okay? So um, I think there's a misunderstanding of this maximal facts approach that we have to say everything. I mean, you're seeing right here, you know, we're going to be talking for an hour and a half, and I still don't have time to say everything that could be said in favor of the, the gospel. So maximal facts doesn't mean you have to say everything in every context. So if all you mean by moderate facts is that you just, you, you learn some of the evidence you don't have to know all of them or you don't present all of them in every context that's a version of what I call maximal facts so the difference ultimately is either you do or you don't argue for strong gospel reliability either you are or you aren't prepared to hold that line and then argue that this is what the witnesses claimed not embellished not necessarily absolutely inerrant but ne never deliberately embellished or you aren't and that's like that's a 
you know, we philosophers, you know, that's uh, mutually exclusive and jointly exhaustive. Um, and so some, if you're going to say I'm a moderate fats person, but you still fall on the other side of that, then I think that you've got a problem. If you just haven't learned all of the, all of the supporting facts, then you're on my side of that line. So that's how I would answer that. Awesome. All right. Cool. So, so yeah, just uh, for the two co-hosts, just because I, I do want to make sure we, we fall within Lydia's time restraints and out of respect for her and that's what, um, is it okay if I move on to the next question or do you guys have any burning follow-ups on, on this issue? No, you can move on. I'm, I'm good because uh, Lydia uh, answered my question more or less, which was um, what aspects of the maximal approach should, would she recommend apologists kind of get their head, heads around? Right. Yeah. They, they, you know, you've got to get your head around that genre issue. I think that's a biggie and, mm -hmm. and be prepared to refute it. And that idea that the ancients had a different, you know, view of truth and all that. And I think you should definitely have in your back pocket some, uh, I, I tell this to everybody, I tell this to laymen as well, um, in your back pocket, some, some of your faves of evidence for the historicity of the gospels. Um, mm -hmm. And in, have that ready and I would say also be careful about get your head around being careful about saying all scholars agree with this or most scholars agree with this I think that can be a pitfall um, if you find yourself about to say that I would say ask yourself are you prepared to say uh, there is a reason why most scholars it concede this and are you sure that most scholars do concede it be sure before you say it and then are you prepared to say why they're right to agree with it as opposed to using it as a stand-in for having your, your own argument? So, so Jesus mythicism is a good example here. I will use the phrase, there is a reason why Jesus mythicism is not well respected in historical circles. There's a reason why even Bart Ehrman, I call him good Bart, you know, when he does this, he's good Bart. Um, you know, when, good, when he's good Bart, he will argue against Jesus mythicism. That's because the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus existed. And I, I'm prepared to argue that myself. So I'm not sort of punting to a consensus as a substitute for my own information. So those, those would be some things I would add in answer to that question. Excellent. Okay. Uh, all right. So, so maybe um, with the next question, we, we've kind of covered a bit in here, but just maybe if you could, okay, what are, in terms of the maximal facts approach, what are the facts? If you maybe wanted to sort of list them, what, what are the historical facts that you use given your approach and maybe say a quick little bit about how we establish these as actual facts? So I think we need to see this as a kind of a, a tree structure with, you know, with roots and, and, and epistemologists love to do this, you know, you've got this, like, you've got these facts coming up from the bottom and then you've got little caps, you know, on top of them. And then that in turn supports something yet higher. And so, you know, at the apex, you've got, you've got the resurrection and then in down below it in the next tier would be things like the disciples claimed that that they were, uh, they met with Jesus at length. The disciples claimed that they were able to touch Jesus. They were invited to touch him. The disciples claimed that they saw him personally. The, the women claimed that too, not just the male disciples, but the, the female disciples. And we've got the accounts of these 
these people. Um, they risked their lives. That would be, you know, there. So we've got that level. And then when you go down below that, you get into all kinds of things about the, uh, the special credibility of the reports. It, uh, there are undesigned coincidences between the resurrection accounts. Um, there are um, arguments about independence, for example. I, I talked about this in an, uh, a post I did on the conspir conspiracy theory of the resurrection, that, for example, these people weren't all just like being brainwashed by one strong central character, uh, like Peter, for example. The, the women would have had other social pressures on them particularly like Joanna, who was apparently one of the women who went to the tomb, you know, her husband was in a very responsible position. So I'm just giving examples, but you've got all these things about independence among people who testified, reliability of the gospels, why we shouldn't think they're embellished and all that. And that's all like down here, supporting those statements and those facts about this is what they claim. This, these are the kinds of experience they claimed they had. These were the situations of, uh, of persecution that they were under. This is about how many claimed. That's another thing. You know that you've got the you've got the eleven. You've got um, at least Matthias because they they put him in to replace Judas, and they he was said to be prepared to be a witness to the resurrection. You get James the brother of Jesus, and then you've got Mary Magdalene. So you know you can like add these up. Like how many people do we actually have names of that claimed this? Um, so you've got like that at this level and down down below it all this whole background evidence that allows you to defend those so that's a kind of a, a brief way of showing the structure all right uh, david i'll turn it straight to you and any follow-up questions on this i'm sure you'll have some not really <laughs> sorry yeah nothing okay that that shocks me all right uh marvin any follow-up uh, questions or comments for you about these historical facts? Okay, before you go to Marvin, I just just yeah, one. I was I was kind of holding this one for my last question at the end, but I guess it makes more sense to put it in here. Um, the empty tomb uh, that seems to be uh, one of the things that uh, minimal factists uh, some put it in, some take it out. Uh, so I'm I'm curious about uh, you there, and uh, maybe something like uh, the shroud uh, is is would that be uh, in a in a minimal or maximal fact? Uh, last follow up on the tomb: if the tomb empty tomb was a big deal for the early church, why don't we? hear or read of any veneration of it. We don't read or hear of any veneration of a shroud. We don't hear, um, we just don't see those things in the Bible. And it's much later that those things come about. So how, how do you fit those things into the, your, your maximal facts approach? Okay, well, I'm, I'm not into the shroud. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying I know it's fake. Uh, it's just not something I've ever investigated. It's not something I bring in. It sure wouldn't fit into a minimal facts approach. In fact, I have I have often shaken my head, uh, and it, recently, in the last six months, I have shaken my head at people who are diehard minimal facts people on the resurrection, and they're out there defending the Shroud of Turin. And it's like, guys, I would like 
I would prefer that you would put that same energy into defending the more robust reliability of the Gospels. You're out there saying, oh, we don't have to argue that they're not embellished. You know, we don't have to saddle ourselves with that. But you're saddling yourself with defending the Shroud of Turin? I mean, you've got to be kidding me. I, I'm sorry. I'm getting, I'm getting animated, but I'm, I'm frustrated with my fellow evangelicals who are out there defending this genre of the Gospels as possibly being embellished, or this was allowed by the standards of the time, and oh, wipe our, the sweat off our eyebrows, thank, or, thank goodness. We don't have to answer claims of contradiction, and we don't have to, uh, we don't have to, um, you know, defend that the gospel authors never made anything up and go up against scholarship in that. But Shroud of Turin, cool, you know, it's like, uh, it, it's like squirrel, you know, they're over there to the Shroud of Turin. So I don't say that necessarily to diss the evidence for the Shroud of Turin. I have not really looked into it. That is not a direction I would go. I certainly think it would be more at home in a maximal facts approach. And therefore, I think it's tremendously ironic that it isn't the maximal facts people who are defending it. So that's my statement on Shroud of Turin. Um, as far as the empty tomb, when Tim and I wrote our Blackwell article, I actually asked him about that. I'm like, are we going to do anything with the empty tomb? This is way back. It was like published in 2009. So I don't even want to think about how many years ago that was. Anyway, um, and, and, and he said, and I think he was right, and I've, I've come to think more that he was right since then, that actually is sort of subsidiary under the testimony of the women. So we had W, we called it, that was uh, the testimony of the women that were conditionalizing on, because who was it who first, according to the Gospels, went and found the tomb empty? It was the women. Uh, now we also have, you know, uh, Peter and John in, in, in John 20, but uh, in general, we didn't conditionalize on the empty tomb. Instead, we conditionalized on testimony because our, our whole model was testimonially based. So if we have, I mean, I think the tomb was empty. I definitely think the tomb was empty. But why do we think that? Because we have, a we, we have accounts of people going and finding it empty. And I would uh, tend now even more to go into the realism of the account of the finding of the empty tomb by, by Peter and the beloved disciple in John 20. I think that has some great marks of realism. But again, what I'm, what I'm conditionalizing on is the story of their finding it empty, which is much more valuable than this sort of bare statement, the tomb was empty. And unfortunately, a lot of the minimal facts folks will try to defend that through 1 Corinthians 15, which does not mention it. Now, I think Paul believed the tomb was empty, but uh, it's not exactly what you would call a, a robust independent attestation to the empty tomb in 1 Corinthians 15, because it just doesn't bring it up. Um, so as far as why it wasn't venerated, if it was really empty, you know, I, I'm a Protestant. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a Catholic friend, friendly Protestant. I'm, I'm an technically an Anglican, but a very low Anglican. I'm not at all convinced that veneration was a thing in the apostolic era. Um, I am not at all convinced that they went around carrying around, you know, like, hey, hey, Peter, you know, I got a, I got a fragment of the true cross while Jesus was hanging on it before they took it down. John, dude, cool. Let's, let's put it up here and let people come and pray in front of it. I, I don't think they did that. Um, I think that was a later, that kind of thing was a later development. Um, and if you think about it from an evidentiary point of view, suppose you have Paul, he's, he's in town. 
he's uh, never seen the empty tomb, but he's become uh, a, a convert several years after Jesus' death. If you go, hey, Paul, come with us. Let's go see the empty tomb. So you go with him. I mean, you might do that. I'm not saying you wouldn't do that. I think it would be cool. But he's got to believe Peter and John already in order to believe they didn't just pick some other tomb and show it to him. I mean, if he thinks they might be lying, if he doesn't trust their witness, then how does he, you know, how does Paul's going and going, oh, cool, empty tomb, you know, how does that really add anything to the evidentiary case? So I think they were far more evidence driven and it was their word, their testimony as having seen the risen Jesus that so greatly overshadowed any value that there could be of having pilgrims walking in there and looking at some empty hole in the rock uh, and telling them this was the empty tomb, take my word for it, that they, they focused on the former rather than on the latter. So that would be my answer there. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, Mark, Marvin, anything from you about the, the facts there? I would just ask Lydia, what would you say is the single most compelling piece of evidence from uh, your maximal facts for the resurrection? So if I was to ask you, prove to me the re resurrection, which is the kind of thing we get asked, what would you say? Well, I would really encourage you to go look up that elevator version on, on YouTube. It doesn't, it's always going to be cumulative. It doesn't work like that. You know, mm -hmm. um, what if somebody asked you, what's the single most compelling bit of evidence that you are not in the matrix? <laughs> what is your single bit of most compelling evidence that, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln existed? Um, what is your single bit of most compelling evidence that Barack Obama was president? So, you know, I'm going to pick, pick these things, these historical things that we know happened, you know. We have overwhelming evidence uh, or the external world or something, but it doesn't, it doesn't work by a, a single bit. I mean, I might just use the word good testimony. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're going to force me, I got to have two words, you know, two words, good testimony. Mm -hmm. But that's going to require a lot of unpacking. And yet again, I want to emphasize, you can unpack that in some of the relatively brief ways that I've done right here in this interview, and also that I've done in that shorter video. You know, the, here's, here's what they claimed under threat of, of death, and people don't tend to do that. So I do a trilemma uh, version. I kind of like this. They were deceivers, or they were deceived, or they were telling the truth. So that's how I organize my, my elevator version. And they, they weren't deceivers because that would have been incredibly stupid. Antonin Scalia, the late justice, said it, it would have been a conspiracy to get themselves killed. Um, they weren't deceived because this was uh, not the kind of thing you could be mistaken about. And given the detail of the evidence, it's like saying, you know, did you really spend a lot of time with your best friend over, over Christmas break? You know, either, you know, you did or you didn't. He's your best friend. You, you, you recognize him. So they, 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 it's not the kind of thing they could have been uh, just mistaken about, like some kind of a trick, like a conjuring trick or something. And, and therefore, uh, probably, very probably, they were telling the truth. So that's my short organization, but it's not so much picking out a single fact, it's just a brief schema of the argument. Mm -hmm. So it's a cumulative, so in a sense, it's a cumulative case nestled with, or cumulative cases nestled within a cumulative case. Exactly, yeah. It's not like you can say, 
well, it's just one this one piece of evidence because there's an interrelationship between the evidences that make them plausible. Right. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Thank All right. You. Cool. So yeah, we you kind of got into the next question there, which is kind of saying why why is the resurrection to be preferred over other naturalistic hypotheses? And you gave your sort of your framework for doing that, but. Yeah, is there is there anything else you want to say about that? Like, why don't naturalistic explanations work in explaining the maximal facts? Um, yeah, I would I would stand with my my schema, but I I would want to emphasize something else. It's very hard for us in the West to understand how demotivating it is when you're going to be crucified. Um, if or you could be or stoned to death or something like that. We're used to things like Elvis sightings um, or the example that David gave of the big hack uh, or just people who just want to make themselves, uh, they just want attention. For example, I've been healed, you know, and they stand to lose almost nothing. I mean, the, the big scheme of it, what's the worst thing that's going to happen if you say you saw Elvis and he wasn't really alive? People are going to laugh at you. You know, so they're going to think you're you're a fool or whatever. But uh, we we mustn't be anachronistic about that. We need to get a sense of the the fraught atmosphere of those early days of the church. Jesus has just been crucified. Crucifixion is horribly brutalizing, and people witnessed it. The Romans wanted them to witness it so that they would be scared out of their minds. Um, the very same religious leaders were in charge, because it's only a few weeks later, who had succeeded in getting Jesus crucified. So they're out there trying to make it sound like these are dangerous insurrectionists. They warn Peter and John, they even beat them and warn them, hey, don't do this anymore. So, and, and, then, and then within a very short time, Stephen actually is stoned to death with impunity, by the way, the, uh, you know, it, there's some conjecture of why they kind of got away with that. It was like a mob, like a lynching, you know. Uh, generally, the Romans took a dim view of that, but apparently nothing happened. So all the more so, they're like, you know, that could happen to any of us. I think the situation in some foreign countries is going to be, a, a, a persecuted church is going to be a better model of that than our situation in the comfortable West. And so it's in our situation in the comfortable West that we start saying, well, maybe they just made this up. Maybe they just lied or people lie all the time, or, um, you know, we bring up these alternative naturalistic hypotheses. To be clear, I would be willing to use those with other contexts where there isn't that same kind of background. I do have a higher bar for, um, for, for, for miracles, and I, I have no qualms. You know, somebody says to me, well, what about rainbow bodies in Buddhism? You know, where they, they claim that this guy's body, you know, shrunk and all that was left was this little thing that's like a little doll or something, you know. Dale Allison. Yeah, it's a Dale Allison example. My first, Dale Allison tried to inquire further into that. And he said, well, they have an esoteric tradition where they don't like to talk to outsiders. And then he's like, so how are you going to distinguish that from the uh, fr fr from the evidence for Christianity. Hello, they didn't have an esoteric tradition. I mean, right there, they weren't trying to hide their evidence from outsiders. And so I'm willing to say right out, how do you know that's not just a big lie? Uh, and it's a very different thing to establish a new religion 
on the basis of a miracle in a hostile context from uh, bolstering the faithful in their belief in an existing religion by uh, claims of miracles that occur within the tradition of that religion, because there's not going to be that same that same challenge and that same system of checks and balances. So I definitely think those kinds of considerations come into play in evaluating the evidence for the for the resurrection of Jesus. Awesome. All right. Uh, so yeah, with the follow-ups, Marvin, I'll I'll, stick, I'll give it to you first this time. Um, it's okay. Let David uh, take that one. All right. Okay. Uh, David, do you have any follow-ups on the explanatory level? Uh, sure. Uh, I think that um, the thing I'd like to hear you uh, speak on a little bit more, Lydia, is this idea of persecution and how fraught things were. So not everyone would agree uh, that persecution was as bad as uh, as you suggest. Uh, there's one book, I can't remember the author, The Myth of Persecution. You might be aware of it. Um, I, I, so I'm, I'm, yeah, I, th I think that's correct. Um, so I am, I don't know how convinced I am that it was such a dangerous thing to stand up and speak for you know, your, your favorite God in the Roman empire, because it was, it was very polytheistic. I mean, they were, they were, um, uh, allowed to celebrate their own individual religions and so forth. And so I, I think, um, maybe there were, were patches where, you know, it, it could be dangerous for Christianity, just as it could be dangerous for any religion that maybe. Uh, put itself against the emperor, uh, as it were. But I'm, I, I think that your argument weighs very heavily on the idea that it, it they're courting uh, almost certain death to proclaim Jesus. Right. I'm not talking about something so broad as the Roman Empire. And I'm not talking about the Romans getting ticked off and just coming in there off their own bat and arresting them. And I am not talking about the persecution at the end of the first century or the beginning of the second century or into the third century. I am talking about Jerusalem in whatever that year was, AD 30, um, and then, uh, you know, moving on to maybe Samaria. But, uh, you know, that region at that particular time and in that particular circumstance. Um, I am not claiming that the Romans were going to look down from their lofty height and say, oh, look, they're in the provinces. There's some guy standing up saying that some, some guy named Jesus has risen from the dead, and uh, we don't think he did, so let's go crucify them. Uh, in fact, the Book of Acts argues strongly against that. It actually finds the, um, the, Roman, the Roman officials are kind of going, what the heck is this all about? You know, the, the, these are... Um, Okay, so you say he rose from the dead and you say he didn't. This is some intra-Jewish argument. But I'm talking specifically about the circumstance where they are um, standing up six weeks after Jesus was crucified when the, the, the Jewish officials are very much opposed. I mean, this is just 
clear. It's a secular matter, this is clear. It's clear in the book of Acts. It's clear in the, in the Gospels all the way through. They hated uh, Jesus. They hated the disciples. They hated this new religion. They probably were afraid it was going to bring the Romans down on them. That was actually given as a reason in John. But I think there was also jealousy. This is mentioned in, uh, in, in the synoptics. And uh, then, of course, the, the, what are they preaching? You killed, you killed Jesus, you know, and he was sent by God at least. And they th thought he was God, but specifically a prophet sent by God at a minimum. And that's not a very comfortable thing to hear. They have previously succeeded in colluding with Pilate, who's still at this point the, the Roman procurator for that region, in getting Jesus crucified. It just happened six weeks ago. Imagine if, you know, if it was that recent. And uh, by accusing Jesus of forbidding to give, uh, you know, tribute to Caesar, accusing Jesus of leading a rebellion and proclaiming himself a king and so forth. Why would they not possibly try to do this to Peter and John? And then you move just a little bit later. I'm not sure how many years later, but it's still very much that same context. They successfully stone Stephen, um, and many of them, Paul is, you know, dragging and beating and all this kind of thing. It's actually happening. It's happening there in, in real time. So um, the, the, the focus on the Roman Empire, I think, here is misguided. And the tolerance of the Romans is actually taken account of in the Book of Acts. But the, uh, the, the religious leaders there in Jerusalem were not tolerant. They were anything but tolerant. And the Romans didn't like trouble. And the Romans tended to be, what word should I use? Uh, they, they, they considered human life cheap, especially if you were not a Roman citizen. They were, I guess I would say, cold-hearted um, and practical. And you even find this with, uh, when Paul gets arrested, this is probably in 55, so this is, you know, some years later, maybe 20 years later or so. Uh, what do they do? They beat him first. <laughs> and then they, <laughs> you know, then they say, oh no, you're a Roman citizen. You know, um, or the, the one guy is prepared to beat him and then he speaks up. He's tired of being beaten. And he says, uh, hey, by the way, you can't beat me. I'm a Roman citizen. But he was going to. I mean, they literally had the lick doors there with his arms over his head until he spoke up and said he was a Roman citizen. Their, their, you know, their philosophy was beat first, ask questions later. Um, why were you doing this? Why were you making the Jews mad? We don't want the Jews to be mad. We want it to be calm. And that was how Jesus got crucified as well. So I don't think those kinds of generalizations are really the relevant considerations here in the very early scenarios and the, the, uh, the, the complex historical scenarios that I think we need to be considering. Out of curiosity, just as a, Thank a, you. Oh, sorry. Out of, out of curiosity, just as a quick sort of follow-up uh, on David's question there, since, since Marvin didn't have anything on this, um, I've heard some skeptics try to argue, and so it, it goes against the acts as reliable and that sort of thing, but they'll try to say, well, really, in the early days, they only, the Jewish leaders were only persecuting Hellenistic Jews, like Stephen or something like that. They didn't go after the mainstream Jews. I don't know if you've heard those types of arguments and what you make of that. Well, that's obviously untrue. I mean, we have the account of why they killed Stephen. It's got zero to do with Hellenism, because we have an account of how he insulted them. 
and it was a very Jewish kind of insult. He stands up there and he gives the history, you know, of, of the Jews, and it's this, uh, then you did this, and, the, you know, our people did this, and our people did this, and now, to cap it all off, we're killing, we're killing Jesus. So it's like a Jew yelling at other Jews, if I can put it that way, uh, about their failure to heed the messenger, messengers from God throughout Jewish history, culminating in killing Jesus, who was, he, he believes, sent from God. So there's absolutely no evidence of that at all. And there is, in fact, evidence to the contrary. Uh, it's that they, they just don't like the message, uh, and, and it's a pretty insulting message to them, saying that they colluded, which they did, to kill Jesus, and Jesus is, uh, is the son of God, he's sent from God, he's the Messiah, you killed our Messiah, and so forth. This is a very, uh, a very Jewish message, but a very inflammatory intra-Jewish message. So I would say that that, that is a, a statement of devoid of uh, of any evidential support and in fact with lots of evidence against it awesome perfect all right um cool so that covers it in terms of all our uh questions that we wanted to cover i hope everyone feels we covered the the topics fully and that sort of thing um but yeah just before we go um so david you are you already asked your your question to lydia um, are you well? I, I've I've got several, so trust me, I can I can give you another. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. Give, give. So I'm just going to open it up to both Marvin to my co-hosts to ask any question that they want um, related to what we've been talking. So yeah, go for it, David. If you've got another one, sure. Um, it's it's a question that I like to ask uh, all Christian apologists when I get a chance to talk to them. These days, I ask Jonathan, Jonathan McClatchy. I didn't like his answer. Um, I hope I like yours better. <laughs> Do you see, do you at least understand why a reasonable person might not accept the resurrection story? Is it, is it just completely unreasonable to you not to accept it? Uh, or, or, or do you see a path of, of reasonableness there? That's a really interesting question, and it touches upon an area in uh, philosophy known as peer disagreement. There's a whole literature called peer disagreement literature. I hate the peer disagreement literature because I think it's sociology masquerading as philosophy. But in a sense, your question is a sociological question, so I think I can answer it in those terms. I think we Christians have suffered from uh, a failure to give the best case that we can give. I think the um, prominence of the minimal facts case for, I don't know, 25, 30 years, maybe more, has been enormously unfortunate for the cause of uh, Christianity. It's gotten people interested, so I'd, I don't want to say uh, that it's done no good, but I think it's been presented as if it's the best we can do. So if I want to talk about a reasonable uh, skepticism, I think it's going to have to be a, a reasonable skepticism because the skeptic doesn't have all the data that I have. And so this is something you get in the peer disagreement literature. Can you have two people with identical sets of data who reasonably take uh, different uh, uh, draw different conclusions. And they literally have identical sets of data. Now, this is highly artificial because no two people ever literally have identical sets of data. It's something of a fiction. But if we envisage 
it is happening or get as close as possible to it, then no, then I'm going to answer like I'm going to guess Jonathan answered. Uh, I, I love Jonathan. He's, he's like a Vulcan, you know, and a very, very rational. And that's one of the things I, I love about him. If you have two people who really literally do both have the all this mountain of evidence for the resurrection, then no, I don't think one can reasonably believe and the other one can reasonably disbelieve the resurrection. I mean, to me, that's related to the objectivity of reason, the objectivity of rationality, that you can't have radically different conclusions that are both equally reasonable on the basis of the same data. But because that is something of a fiction, uh, I can imagine scenarios where, um, where a skeptic just doesn't know the data and or all of it or enough of it or whatever and hasn't uh hasn't delved and there i would i would appeal I, i'm not into pascal's wager as pascal does it but i would appeal to a modified version which i think was from bishop butler that it's worth your investigating it's not that you should just you know believe because you want to believe but that you which is perhaps unfair to pascal let me add but but that you should take the time to investigate because it's so important. The importance of it gives you a motive to investigate sooner. And so when I talk to a skeptic, my goal is to pick his interest and pick his curiosity. You know, I'm not, I'm not expecting, you know, a light to fall from heaven on, on David because he talked to me today. Uh, I mean, that would be great, you know, but if, if it happened, but I don't really expect it. But what I might hope for would be that David would go away and say, well, this is different. This isn't what I hear all the time. And uh, maybe there's more to this than I thought. I'm going to, I'm going to go, you know, and this is, I'm not just trying to get you to buy my books, you know, but I'm going to go get her books. I'm going to read them, or I'm going to go start reading more of uh, Jonathan's blog posts or, um, you know, watching Tim McGrew's lectures. And, and I'm going to try to delve into this and I'm going to look into the background of this and see if um, maybe I'm wrong, you know, because after all, eternal issues are at stake. So in that sense, a skeptic could possibly be reasonable uh, on the basis of a subset of the evidence. So that would be my answer there. All right. I keep interrupting you every time. Sorry, but all right, Marvin. Uh, sorry. So over to you. Yeah, you get to ask the final question of the night. Uh, anything you want to Lydia. Yes, Lydia. I'd like to ask how your approach uh, differs from evangelical scholars who do this so-called fictionalizing. Could you could you talk a little bit about fictionalizing and how your approach differs? Right. So that's what the mirror or the mask is about. Mm -hmm. And I get into it in uh, the eye of the beholder as well. I really want to I want to push the eye of the beholder because it's new, but also the mirror or the mask. Um, of course, they don't like the word fictionalizing. But in my opinion, the reason that they don't like it is because it reveals too clearly too explicitly what it is that they're actually saying because I define it very clearly it's a descriptive term and it's not even necessarily a pejorative term in and of itself so if you go to a movie and that movie makes up a scene that didn't happen or it moves an event by several years I call that fictionalizing that that doesn't mean that the author is a bad guy um, it, in and of itself because we do have a genre of a movie based on true events I don't actually think they had that genre I don't think that was a thing at the time and so they really would be lying but because of uh 
because of contingent facts about what genres were and weren't, you know, available to them. If it were really in this other genre, it would just be a partially fictional genre. I don't think they ever did that. Um, I, I don't think that genre existed. I take the time to go through uh, it, the supposed Greco-Roman evidence for this, and I, I deny that. I don't think these compositional devices where you were, you know, allowed and everybody just kind of, the audience just kind of sat back and enjoyed the ride and, and took it with a grain of salt that maybe you moved it. I don't think those were a thing. I don't think the, I don't think the Gospels audiences would have expected that. I think they would have been very confused if they had deliberately moved things. Um, so part of what I mean by what I call reportage is that idea that even if they occasionally made a good faith error, they never deliberately made something up, even on a matter of detail. And so we'll be told, well, if it's just a detail, it doesn't matter. Well, first of all, some of the things that they're saying are changed are not what most of us would call matters of detail. But second of all, um, even on a matter of detail, if I'm talking to you and I say, you know, this took place at um, Starbucks and I know for a fact that it really took place in my living room, um, you know, I, I've, I've confused you, right? Mm -hmm. if, if it's in a context where I know that you are going to think it happened at Starbucks, and, and for whatever reason, I want it to be in my living room, um, I'm confusing my audience. And I believe that the gospel authors would have confused their audience if they'd done that, and that they, they never did that. They never uh, said, well, it won't really matter if I make Jesus say this now instead of in the Garden of Gethsemane, because I like that for my story, or, uh, oh, I'll make the temple cleansing take place three years earlier, or whatever. Um, that, in my view, is, is just it's something they never did. And I wanna make it clear, that's not because I'm clutching my imaginary pearls here because I'm a fundamentalist and it hurts me to imagine it. It's something that I deny on the basis of what I consider to be a mountain of evidence to the contrary, that that's not how the gospel authors worked. So, you know, if that were the way it was, then we'd be in some pretty big trouble. I think that should motivate people not to accept it lightly, but the reason we should reject it is because that's not the way the evidence points. So, that's so in, a, in other words, Crea is just cray cray. Yes, you know, uh, do you guys know, <laughs> did you guys know that Dr. Wakona, when he did his uh, response videos to me, he took a blip from our previous discussion, and David got me in trouble in that previous discussion. David goes, so this crayon thing, is that just all BS? Yeah. And I go, um... Yes. And, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have used such a crude term, but by Jove, I guess he thought people would be shocked, you know. Um, he took that little clip with David's voice saying, so is this Craya thing all just BS? And Lydia going, um, yes. And he put it in his video series, and I don't know, maybe people were supposed to fade away at the insult to Craig Evans, uh, who is big on this Craya idea. Um, yeah, the Crea idea that as Dr. Evans talks about it, which I don't have time to go into now, I talk about it in uh, The Mirror or the Mask at length. I have an entire chapter called Going Crazy um, in, in The Mirror or the Mask, and uh, it, it, it's not supported. It's just it's just really, really weak. The arguments for what he thinks they did are really weak. There, there is a word Crea. There is a Greek word Crea. It means anecdote. Uh, Richard Balcom, I have no less an authority than Richard Balcom on that, that the word Crea 
yes, it can mean something technical in a rhetorical uh, context like the schools of rhetoric, but it can also just mean uh, an anecdote. And, and there's a connection between those because even in the schools of rhetoric, what they're doing is having like students tell a story as an exercise. Uh, so tell a, tell a crea or do this to the crea. It's like we would say the story or the anecdote um, but that doesn't mean it, it's not a, a real anecdote that happened, in fact, as told, maybe even just exactly as told. So we find Papias, the church father, saying that Peter told his stories in the form of Crea, but that doesn't mean anything heavy about anybody, Mark or Peter, changing, uh, changing the facts in that. It's just, it's just like we would say, my, my uncle Jim used to tell stories about his time in the army. That doesn't mean uncle Jim is, is changing anything. So that's, that's what the word Crea, I think, actually means, not this uh, expansive idea of their being uh, allowed to change facts. So, yeah, so yeah. just just for the record, Lydia, it is never my intention to get you in trouble, no, although, although that's fun, don't get me wrong. And uh, you and I, we, uh, we disagree on quite a lot, but on this, on this Crea thing, as near as I can tell, and I'm no scholar, I completely agree with you <laughs> on this. And so when I, when I bring it up, it's, it's as a matter of part of our, where we are 100% on the same side. So, um, cool. and I, I, I love Craig Evans. I, I love, love uh, Mike Lacona. I, I respect uh, both of them, but uh, I think it's just wrong <laughs> on that. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. And just to defend, Mike and, and Lydia on this, yeah, so it's, it's about the substance, right? It, we have different opinions. I respect, I, I side more with Mike Lacona personally, but I respect the heck out of Lydia's view. I think it's refreshing that there's an, another view to consider and maybe, you know, to reconsider things. So, so yeah, I, I've posted for the audience um, a link to both Mike's series of videos on this issue and also Lydia's series of, of videos on these issues. So check out both sides. You know, I think both sides are, are worthy of serious consideration. So imagine yeah. Dale and I on different sides. Well, and in that sense, you could view, you know, David as more conservative or whatever. I didn't know that about Dale. It's kind of interesting, like literally here, just at the very end, I'm learning what Dale just said. And, you know, I'm busy launching a book right now, Dale, but, uh, you know, if you ever want to talk in like email or something mm -hmm. about this and say, you know, this is what I think is the strongest um, argument, you know, for the Lakota view or a couple of them, uh, I can like maybe direct you to specific videos or blog posts that address that or specific chapters. Uh, do you have a copy of The Mirror or the Mask? Um, I don't. I bought the, um, after you were on the show, I did buy The Undesigned Coincidence. I was impressed with your, your reasoning. So yeah, that's the, the book I have from you. And I also have your article on the resurrection, obviously, in the Black Book Companion sort of thing. But. So I would just encourage you to, you know, delve into it because I would say my treatment in the Mirror of the Mask and in the follow-up video series is nothing if not thorough. Hmm. It's, it's very thorough. And I often find that people who say, oh, I lean more towards the Lacona side of it. Um, I'll say, you know, what do you think is the reason? And then if they tell me, they'll go, ah, oh, the exercise books or something like that. And I'll go, well, you know, I've, I've, I've tr treated that. I've dealt with that. I've, you know, refuted that. It's, it's like really, really not supported by the evidence. And have you 
watch that or have you read that? Oh, no, I, I don't have time. So, or I haven't done it. So I guess I really would encourage you to kind of delve into it because, um, you know, since you respect us both, in a sense, I, I, I think that could lead you to think that you need to see uh, both sides of it in a really thorough, thorough way. And I think you might be surprised to find out that there's not really anything that he's uh, alleged that sounds impressive on the face of it that I haven't answered. Uh, and I think answered, you know, of course, I think answered decisively. When you get a chance to just delve into it, you may not think that I have, but I've, I've certainly tried. So, uh, you know, before you go um, telling somebody, I guess that's what I would mainly say to you, Dale, as a, as a fellow Christian. Suppose you're dealing with a skeptic. Suppose you're dealing with a, a, or a deconvert or somebody who's on the verge of deconverting or something. And you're, uh, I don't want to use the word tempted, but maybe I should use the word inclined or on the verge of saying, well, it's really okay. Uh, you're concerned about contradictions in the Gospels, but uh, Mike Lacone has done all this work and that was allowed at the time. They were allowed to change things. And like, you're going to give this as an answer to a skeptic or a, or a deconvert or a person whose faith is wavering, when you're on the verge of doing that, say to yourself, Lydia, whom I also supposedly respect, has written an extremely long book and given a, a detailed book and a video series where she says, no, that's not the right answer to give to that kind of question, and maybe give a, some different kind of answer to him. Or if you want to bring it up, you could say, now, this is what uh, one scholar says, although I'm a, I, I want to say that another scholar believes there's a different, better answer uh, to these kinds of questions about contradictions, and her name is Lydia McGrew, so I'm not necessarily, you know, endorsing just one side of this, because what you don't want is to be encouraging people to trust in Jesus or to hang on to their faith on the basis of a theory that, that then they're, you know, you haven't had time to thoroughly investigate yourself and that is wrong you know that could that could be a bad thing so i think that's that's just what i would encourage you uh since you lean in that direction is to just prescind for the time being f until you're really really you know convinced and examined the counter arguments and everything on both sides in detail from offering that to someone who needs uh, an answer to a skeptical problem with his faith yeah, yeah, well, well said. I, I think that's entirely fair, and I promise you, I, I will do that because that's that's what I'm all about. I, I think it's important to give the skeptics the various answers that are out there and resources on both sides. So, I promise, yes, I will do that. That's so. cool. Awesome. All right. So, I, I will I will say that uh, I, I'm very impressed. Uh, it's I went to Biola, and of course they lean. We lean towards the minimal facts. Gary was an itinerant um, uh, scholar. Um, Mike Lacona, I know his, his works are very well respected, but uh, I like your approach and I think it does give the apologist um, the best tools. And the best tools is the gospel in its entirety, <laughs> right? There you go. So it's really changed my thinking on the issue positively, so. Thank you. Thank you, Marvin. That's really encouraging. Pleasure. Pleasure. Yeah. Awesome. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. So thank you. And just so you know, Lydia, I was a, I was a very conservative preacher in a very conservative church. Uh, and so theologically speaking, uh, I grew up uh, thinking more like you. 
so I'm, I'm very familiar with your, um, your, your style of theology and your style of thinking. It's uh, one of the reasons I, I tend to think that your approach to some of these things are right when I have my theological uh, hat on. The fact is I was more conservative than you because I would have never, for instance, suggested that it's possible for there to be mistakes <laughs> in John. I would you have said, no. yeah. Yeah. That's so, how I was raised too. Yeah. So we, uh, we actually have a lot more in common than than the audience might realize uh on right well and i just i want to say this though because i hear skeptics say that they'll be like i was raised you know really really conservative don't mistake that for your having had the best evidence for your beliefs though oh no i don't i don't know that context is not necessarily the context to get the best argument right no i i left my denomination long before i left the faith uh Mm -hmm. i determined that that was not in fact um, the best foundation, but just just speaking uh, generically as a matter of uh, being being in sync with your way of thinking, it, it would surprise the audience that of all of the guests uh, that I've had on SNS and the people that I've talked to since I've been doing this, uh, you and I share a lot more DNA than uh, than one might imagine. Um, well, it's it's I- not it's not the way I argue now, obviously, but when I have my Christian hat on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sound a lot like Lydia McGrew. <laughs> well, and, and I want to say something to that, though, because um, I heard an anecdote the other day. It was a Craya. Uh, anyway, sorry, about, um, about Craig Evans uh, sitting at a, um, a dinner with somebody, if I, and I don't even remember who this was, and that the person he was sitting at dinner with was a um, very conservative Christian, and they were discussing Bart Ehrman and something that, you know, Ehrman had said, and that Evans turned to this guy, this very conservative Christian, and in a jocular sort of way, said to him, you know, Bart Ehrman is your fault. That's what he said. He's your fault. And you'll hear this a lot. And I think one reason I can tell this, even though it was a private thing that was told to me privately is because it's very typical of the way that Dr. Evans and Dr. Lacona, and to some extent, I think Dr. Bill Craig thinks as well, uh, people will hear what David just said, and they'll say, yeah, that's right. Lydia agrees with with the, these skeptics because ultimately skeptics and Lydia are fundamentalists at heart. I mean, that's kind of a hard sell since I'm not an inerrantist, but um, the uh, folks on Dr. Lacona's side will call me a fundamentalist. They've, do- they've done it. Um, and it's, it's interesting because then they'll say, yeah, and it's that rigid view that caused David to lose his faith. It's that rigid view that caused Bart Ehrman to lose his faith. We need to not think like Lydia McGrew because we're putting ourselves out there. We're putting ourselves at too much risk. We need to take a more uh, minimal sort of approach, minimalist sort of approach, because then we have a more robust faith and we can keep our faith. And so that will actually be used to argue against it. But what I argue instead is that not only should we and must we take a more forward approach, but the great thing is that we can, that it's actually, it needs to be defensible, but it is defensible. And so I don't consider that a weakness. I consider it a strength. And I wanted to address it because David said that. And I can, I can, just, I can hear certain folks whom I won't name who will be out there and saying, yeah, they share a lot of DNA because uh, that kind of naive fundamentalism is, is common among skeptics and that's how they lose their faith. And if they accepted our view, they'd still be Christians. I don't actually think that's true. I think uh, if I were a 
skeptic and someone presented to me the idea that the gospel authors thought it was uh, okay to change facts, I'd say, well, okay then, then why should I believe any of this? You know, I, I wouldn't find that uh, particularly helpful to, to regain my faith. So I just want to throw that out there because I think that was a real interesting comment that David said. And then we should be wrapping up. Perfect. All right. So yeah, I think that brings us to a close, as, as Lydia said. So I really enjoyed the discussion. I, I hope, uh, Lydia, you feel that you got to present your view. Awesome. And uh, Marvin and David, I hope you guys had a good time on your end as well. Wonderful. Thank you. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. All right. So yeah, I'll, I'll wrap up at this point. Um, uh, next week, just so the audience knows, we have uh, Dr. Michael Malona is coming on. He's sort of an expert uh, in the philosophy of emotions, and we're going to be kind of discussing theories about, okay, what are the emotions, and how might that relate to moral epistemology and that sort of thing. Uh, and then the week after that, we have Dr. Liz Jackson coming on to with David Johnson, who's going to be joining me again to discuss religious epistemology, as well as her notion on Pascal's wager. So those are the new shows you guys have to, to look forward to. And other than that, have a great week. All right, take care.